Greetings and salutations. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of A Conversation With here on Keyboard Tomorrow, presented by One. I'm E. Spencer Kite, joined today by the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. <laughs> Dave Schaller, currently the Chief Communications Officer for the Philadelphia 76ers and HBSE, formerly the VP of Public Relations and Athlete Management, Athlete Marketing, excuse me, with the UFC, a good friend, a longtime friend, a guy that has been on the hit list for this show <laughs> since its inception. We had to work through some big time deals that were happening on your side of things, not mine. <laughs> but we're finally here. Welcome to the program. How are you, my friend? It is good to see you. ESK, it's good to see you. You and I, um, before the UFC was this incredible machine that it is now, merging with the WWE and starting TKO, uh, we were sitting cage side at you know, venues all across the world, uh, especially up there in, in Canada. And to watch how you've continued to, to grow and, and cover the sport in such a unique way and the fact that uh, you know, I ventured off into, into other sports, but the bond that we shared and the, and the, the laughs that we had, man, <laughs> I, I miss those days. Um, you know, with all due respect to my brother from another mother, John Anik, uh, they, they could have put a microphone on guys like you, me, Tom Gervaisi, Mark LaMonica down towards the end of the best <laughs> row. That was a that was an, a conversation with that would have uh, yes. had corporate sponsors had we let it go live. Yeah, we we certainly would have lost whatever branding partnerships we had. And, and probably those, our jobs. And probably our jobs. But those were some of my favorite memories as well. I will never forget sitting very end of very end of press row watching Travis Brown and Andre Arlovsky beat the holy hell out of each other and you and I just giggling like like little children at these two grown men just beating the hell out of each other for our for their for their careers for our entertainment and amusement training and he, partners by the way training partners friends i mean that and, that to me was the most fascinating part about that fight in particular is you knew how close they were right and you you are appreciating that no different than really any other sport that when the cage door closes it's time to compete but for both of us understanding the privilege of being able to watch that yeah. it, it, you know in, in communications and pr you're supposed to sit there like a good soldier and you know right. not having how do you not when, when the Korean zombie is taking on Leonard Garcia or Travis right. Brown is is taking on Andre or any of these iconic fights that stand the test of time? If you're not smiling, you're not alive when you're right. watching those fights. Yeah, you got to not do the like stand up and clap. But if you're not sitting no. there kind of with that little smirk on your face of, yeah, yeah. this is special. Yeah. Then we may need to check your pulse. But totally before agree. we get into reminiscing and memories and things like that. We always start this show the same. So Dave Schaller, when did you fall in love with combat sports? Uh, that one is, is relatively easy for me. Uh, I grew up just outside Atlantic city, New Jersey in a big boxing town. Um, and for me, it was Arturo Gatti. No, no doubt about it. Um, watching him compete and go to war with guys like Mickey Ward, for him to step in between the ropes with someone like Floyd Mayweather and look, take incredible punishment, but keep coming forward. Um, there's so many incredible combat sports athletes, boxers who came through Atlantic City. And look, I never had the money to go watch them compete, but you don't grow up where I grew up and, and not know names like Bernard Hopkins and Arturo Gaddy and Mickey Ward and Kelly Pavlik. 
so that that was really it for me. And then I, I know it, it is cliche for many uh, who love mixed martial arts, but that first season of The Ultimate Fighter um, to me was such a brilliant strategy that Dana and Lorenzo, Dana White, Lorenzo Fertitta had enacted because it brought to life uh, the art in mixed martial arts. You got to understand the stories. And, you know, I remember in, in 2014, 15, 16, uh, before I departed, sitting in meetings with Forrest Griffin, who was working on the athlete development team and going, damn, like I, I work with the guy that really helped get me into this sport. Um, you know, I was at Chuck Liddell's Hall of Fame uh, and, and retirement party. Like, this is the guy, this is the Iceman. Um, so that was always very special to me. But to answer your question directly, it was it was back in those boxing days in AC. And so then for you, what was the path from growing up as a fan, boxing, getting into MMA as enjoying the sport, yep. into this is a career pursuit or an avenue I'm going to get into work-wise on the PR front? Look, you and I share a mentor and someone who was incredibly important to us, and that's uh, Tom Gervaisi, uh, one of the godfathers of combat sports writing, in my opinion, especially in MMA. Um, when I was a college student, I was freelancing for a variety of newspapers while getting my communications degree, and I started covering boxing, and I was dying to work for UFC.com. And I must have pestered uh, TG for... I don't know, eight, nine, 10 months. And um, finally he said, all right, kid, I'm going to give you a chance. And he, he paid me as a freelance writer to do a story on Ivan Salivary. Um, and uh, I got a chance to interview Ivan and a few other athletes along the way. I was actually one of the first people to interview Cain Velasquez, who went on to become the heavyweight champion. Um, and Tom gave me an opportunity to freelance. I freelanced and did some writing projects for him for just under a year. And um, at the end of the year mark, 9, 10, 11 months, he asked me if I'd be interested in interviewing for a communications job at this little company called the WEC. And uh, I had never been west of Philadelphia. I grew up in New Jersey. <laughs> I'd never been west of Philadelphia. So I flew out on short notice and uh, found myself interviewing with Jen Wank, who at the time was the head of comms and, and a great friend and, and someone who taught me a lot. And uh, I found myself at the Palace Station Casino in Las Vegas, which was then across from the old UFC building. And we were at this long wooden table. And I'll never forget this. In walks Dana White. He had one of those really cool MTV old logo shirts. And he sat at the end of the table. And we proceeded to have an incredible interview. Um, and that was on a Thursday or Friday. And I was packing up my stuff on a Monday and, and getting ready to move across the country to work for the UFC. And, and, and that so much of that is because Tom Gervaisi gave me a shot and uh, didn't allow my persistence to uh, pester him. And, and he saw some talent in me and, and thankfully it all came together. TG is certainly a guy that, as you said, you and I share as a mentor, somehow it's been almost 12 years that I've been able to just hide out and yeah. continue to get opportunities <laughs> and not annoy him to the point that he's like, Nope, we're done. Right. Right. And, and it's funny. You said, all right, kid, I'm going to give you a shot. I can hear those exact words yeah. from him. Cause it's somewhere along the way I heard it. Yeah. And I've been fortunate enough to hear it for these last 12 years of like, all right, I'm going to give you a shot on these different things. Yeah. And it's a progression. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's 
ESK, it's a testament to, I know a lot of people um, like to say that they're self-made. And I respect that phrase, but I don't agree with it. There's not a single person I know at any walk of life that is truly self-made. There was someone along the way, a teacher, a mentor, a coach, a friend, a relative who extended that hand. If if TG doesn't extend that hand, maybe I make it to the UFC some right. other way. But he pulled me up in a way that, you know, frankly, he didn't have to. And uh, I'm forever grateful to him. And I love to see his family growing with his daughter having children. And uh, it's just it's just cool. And, and it you think about the people along your journey, whether it's Dana Lorenzo, Tom Gerbezi, Kirk Hendrick, Peter Dropik, Lawrence Epstein, Reed Harris, Gary Cook, like so many people. I almost now I'm thinking about it, I don't want to rattle them <laughs> off because I don't want to forget. Right, you're going to forget somebody. And but there were so many people who took a shot on a kid who grew up in a trailer park in South Jersey who loved the sport. And it created so many avenues for me. Um, I will forever be grateful to those three letters, the UFC and, and the WEC too. Um, but um, especially those moments that we were able to create. Yeah. The mentor thing is, is important to me. You and I have talked about it in the past. It's one mm -hmm. of those things that to me, when I look at the landscape today and where, where I've been able to get to, I feel the same as you. I wouldn't be here. Anytime somebody asked me like, how did you get into it? How can I do it? The first words out of my mouth are there were a bunch of people that took a shot on me along the way and shepherded me through this to where I got to a point where a little bit established. Yep. Learned up, schooled up a little bit. Know the mistakes yep. not to make. There have been some calls where it was, hey, do you really want to do this or do you want to just be a pain in the ass? Yeah. And you and you learn and you grow because those people invest in you. You were one of them for me that helped me get further along in this. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about while I have you sitting here, confined spaces, is sort of for those aspiring people for yeah. those folks that are trying to get a little bit further into things. What are some of the recommendations you have as somebody on the comm side of things for people that are looking to build those relationships to gain access, which I know a lot of people throw around as a, as a dirty word these days, yeah, right, but right. look, it's, it's important to be able to talk to coaches, athletes, organizational representatives, not in a dirty way, not in a carrying their water way, just in a have conversations way. So for those yeah. people, what are the things that are essential to you or the steps they can take to start building those relationships to get to those points? That's a hell of a question. And I'll tell you the first word that came to my mind, which, which is authenticity. I think this is a challenging field because, you know, this thing changed the game. It's a 24 hour a day, seven day a week business. And uh, even the way that news is written and produced has changed. Uh, and some would say for better, some would say for worse. It doesn't matter how you interpret it. It's changed. Um, I think building authentic, incredible relationships is important. You know, the one thing I've always respected about our dynamic is there were times where you'd ask me questions where they were tricky questions that involved athletes or company policies or whatever. And I think we had built up enough of a rapport where when I could help you, I would. And when I couldn't, you understood that I was doing my job and it never yep. became personal. It doesn't mean things don't get contentious or you don't butt heads with writers or reporters. That's actually healthy, I think. Um, you know, some of the, the media members that I've grown closest to over the years and consider not only colleagues, but friends I've gone to war with in, in very right. constructive ways. But I, I think especially now in this world where social media at times can be so artificial, um, 
having authentic and genuine relationships and doing your part, especially in media relations and comms, the folks that are filing the stories that are doing the reports have a job to do, as do I. But how can we work together to make sure that it's a fair story, it's a balanced story, that all parts are represented, but that we maintain that kind of courteous professional relationship along the way? In the early days of the UFC, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It wasn't. Um, you know, we were trying to build what is now a global machine. And at a time where there were many, many months of my life over the eight years I was living and working out of Vegas, where we would fly all over the country to what we in the business call editorial meetings, where you sit down and you meet with an editor, or you meet with a series of editors. And the amount of times I would be sitting across the table with Dana or Reed Harris or Cowboy Cerrone or Uriah Faber or some big star to try to communicate exactly what it is we were promoting, you still got a lot of the um, funny looks. Cage fighting, everyone right. would bring up the John McCain line with the human cockfighting. And um, the, the ways that we were able to kind of break down some of those barriers, we built relationships and we showed proof of concept. And I, I believe today the same thing I, I believed in 2008, 2009, which is I don't think you can truly appreciate the full power of combat sports, boxing, MMA, bare knuckle, any of this, until you go see it live. Because I think it captures the true essence of the sport. You get to understand the art in mixed martial arts. You get to understand the sweet in sweet science. And, um, and that's something that was always really powerful. But, you know, authentic relationships is key. And, and knowing that when you are on the other end of the phone or Zoom or in person that you're getting a fair shake. I think that's really important. Not always easy, but it, it starts with authenticity. Well, and to me, a part of that too, to that authentic part is getting those folks that you know they're there for the right reasons, if that's no, it makes sense. You know, a term I can throw around doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be boots on the ground all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be talking to those athletes all the time, but are you giving them and the sport and the thing you're covering that fair shake? Are you giving both sides? Are you providing full context or are you here just to say either Joel Embiid is the absolute greatest basketball player of all time or Joel Embiid is absolute trash. What are the Sixers doing or anywhere in between? Yeah. If you're coming at it with full context and presenting just the story, what the story is, you put your opinion in there. You can have your thoughts. Certainly. But it's not, you know, I, I feel like we're getting more and more to the hot take, firing shots, need to make the headline, need to get that, as you said, social media sort of clout. Yeah. And we've lost some of the art of storytelling, some of the art of making people understand why this thing on Saturday is special. I think that's a really incredible point. And look, I... To me, I think today's journalists and today's newsroom, it's a different world than, you know, when we grew up and we were picking up, you know, the Philadelphia Daily News or the Enquirer or the New York Times or whatever, the, the way news is consumed is different. And there is absolutely pressure on folks to get clicks and make sure that they sure. can monetize content. So I'm very sympathetic to that. But you brought up a point about kind of making sure that the athletes and the, and the folks that are being interviewed feel comfortable. 
you know, it's it's no secret after all these years that I'm still very close with uh, Cowboy Cerrone. He's he's the godfather to my twin daughters. But I remember in the early years, and I say this out of love, uh, in the early WBC years, he was a pain in the ass when it came to PR because he didn't get it. He didn't yeah. understand it. I vividly remember we were in Youngstown, Ohio, and uh, we were getting ready to promote his fight with uh, Benson Henderson that eventually got moved to San Antonio, Texas. And we were at like a 5 a.m. press tour. We're going on after the adopted dog segment. No kidding. Like him and Reed Harris are getting ready to promote a, a world cage fight, world championship cage fight. And we're going on after the adopted dog segment. And Cowboy looked at me and he was like, I just don't understand why we have to do any of this. Over time, we were able to show him the power of not only building the WEC and UFC's brand, but building your own brand. Right. And while it's not the media's responsibility to help you build your own brand, if you're authentic and genuine and you make the investment in building relationships with reporters and outlets and telling your story and, and kind of letting your authentic self shine, you build something and it's true to who you are. And that's what cowboy has always been to me. You may not agree with everything that comes out of his mouth. I don't always agree with his political takes, right. but I know who he is as a human being. I know what he does for youth. I know what he does for the community. And I have seen that guy take young fighters who are quite literally broken, broken, and he fosters an environment where they can thrive and succeed. And in such a polarizing world that we live in right now, I think sometimes we lose the good that people do. And uh, I had, you know, a similar perspective with John Bones Jones. You know, Johnny and I traveled the world together during his ascension. And, and John will tell you he made some mistakes along the way. But I was able to see John in a different light than at times I wish the public could see the way he would treat people uh, and sign every autograph or take every picture or have a conversation with a young kid or spend time after practice with a young fighter. Um, you don't always get to see that. And, and sometimes we focus on the missteps and that's okay. That's the world we live in. But um, to your point about kind of telling both sides of the story and making the investment, that's what I would always tell the UFC fighters and the WEC fighters back in the day is you don't need to look at media as an opponent. You look at it as an opportunity to tell your story. Right. And, uh, and someone like you, I think has really made a knack for that and giving fighters and I don't say safe space to mean that you don't ask tough questions because you do, but a safe space to know that when a tough question is asked, it's matched with dialogue so they can convey their thoughts properly. And, uh, and, and that's just kind of where I net out on that. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Cowboy is forever the most difficult interview that I've ever had. Anybody well, that ever he's usually me. riding on the back of a motorcycle while like juggling plates and shooting guns. And so I got him some like, early morning, angry, tried to set it up through his people. It didn't come together. And a text message or a phone call went through from someone further up the chain than me. <laughs> so then I got a like very surly Donald Cerrone that was giving me one and two word answers. And I was like, all right, man, I'm just going to let you go. And he decided to tear into me. And I was like, I'll take it. It's fine. Just let me tell you my side. Yeah. I think very soon after he was out here in Vancouver for the Wagner Hosha fight and his wonderful grandmother was here and I got up out of a chair to let grandma Jerry sit down and he saw it and was like, appreciate that. And we were thick as thieves since. Yeah. So, so that is the full circle of Donald Cowboy Cerrone for me. I love that. Love it. He's the best.
So you mentioned having some different perspectives, some different views and, and seeing some different things with John Jones. You obviously saw a very odd perspective as you got thrown into a backdrop at one point. That happened. You get, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. No one's ever reminded me of that. Yeah. No, never, never comes up. I watched the interview with MMA junkie from, I think it was probably like three years yeah, long ago, time ago, something like that. Yeah. I know it gets brought up all the time. Yeah, obviously cool. it's a thing that MMA people remember you the most for, unfortunately. Yeah, not unfortunately though. I don't. I, I don't... see. This is going to be my question. Do, yeah. Is it just the embrace? It is it just the love? Like you, you steered into it perfectly, even day of. Because I remember the probably a Facebook post. This is how old we are. Facebook yeah. was still the social media that we used all the time. Twitter, yeah, 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 and it was handle the press conference. They said, do the stare down. They yeah. said, everything will be fine. And there's the panic face. Yeah. It's look, there's a couple of things with that. I, and I don't say this for effect. Like I grew up in a broken home, the son of a drug addict in a trailer park in South Jersey. So when an idol and a mentor like Dana White entrust you with doing a stare down or having an opportunity to lead a press conference or go on a press tour or whatever, you're like, I still, to this day, I'm getting chills thinking about it. You know, I grew up rooting for the 76ers. I was an intern here. And um, when you have those moments, I think at times, and I've, it's been interesting watching the Dana White versus Espinoza back and forth <laughs> because right. you know, I, I don't know the one guy, but like I know the authentic Dana White and he's, he's doing what he does and what he's best at. And, and he's calling BS on what he thinks is BS. And I love that about Dana. But for me, when I was up there and – I, I, I don't say this to be like dramatic. It was like being in a car accident. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're in the backdrop. You pop up real quick. And you're like, what the hell just happened? Right. And for me, I, one of the best pieces of advice I got early on in life is you can't take yourself too seriously. And if anybody thought that a five foot eight at the time, 145 pounds, I, I eat a little bit more now, but at the time, 145 pound guy was going to actually stop the two baddest fighters in the world. Um, what I, I've, I haven't shared this story often, but my favorite part of that story was what happened after everyone calmed down. And uh, I'm like dealing with MGM security. As many people remember, for whatever reason, that day there was like a, a group of senior citizens checking in behind the lion at MGM. So like we're tussling all over the MGM and these sweet old women are just there to, you know, gamble their lives away and have a great time. But I remember uh, I get a text from Malki Kawa, um, Malki, a, a good friend, and so happy to see his success in the NFL. He texts me, says, hey, come up to John's room. And I had no idea what to expect. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I walk up and I literally, this is probably the only time in the whole thing I was actually nervous, despite what my face said during the stare down. And I, I go up and I knock on the door. And John's standing there with his arms out. And he has a huge smile. He says, come here. And he gives me a big old hug. He's like, I'm sorry you were in the middle of that. And I had a similar interaction with DC. But to your question, to your point, like I, I yeah, I, I thought, look, I'm, I don't take myself too seriously in anything. But um, that was a moment in time where, whether I liked it or not, I was a part of forever, one of the right. biggest rivalries in UFC history. And if, if that's how people remember my time there, like I I'm cool with that. I'll remember the relationships and the experiences and the sold out arenas and, 
and the trials and tribulations of you know buying strike force and merging wec in um but that was a, that was a funny moment i still laugh about it and still to this day i will have you know employees at other teams in the nba or folks on the road still come up to me about it and i'm like I, do they think i'm john anik or are they going to ask me about right yeah uh, it's the, one the, of i'm the the do they think of John Anik is still one of my favorite things from being at live events with you of just like here comes Dave he's gonna come sit down and somebody hollers Anik and you're like you know John Anik's right over there he's the guy the with fight. the headset on he's the guy with yeah. the cans on and he's there's a fight happening yeah he can't be I mean there's a podcast going on but no one's listening it's me and ESK <laughs> talking shit during the fight right. Uh, no, listen, I, I think um, it's part of the reason I, I don't think people think I could. Everyone used to joke that because I worked for Dana, I shaved my head. So just to try to like keep right. up with the bald look, I actually I have hair now. It's, it's under there. Yeah. Um, I should have probably grown it out during my UFC tenure, which would have helped the uh, the uh, confusion. Let me tell you while I have a, a moment, though, I am so thrilled for John Anik to see the success that he's had. He is one of the best human beings in the game, but also that dude, the level of grind and commitment to get to where he is. I remember having a, uh, a lunch with him and a couple of his colleagues from MMA Live yep. um, at the Hard Rock. I think it's Virgin Hotel or something now. And I remember my first impression of John's like, this guy wants it more than anybody else. And to see him not only go out there and do it, but man, when you're, when you're a color commentator, anybody, you know, he, I think he makes everybody better. Um, but when you're a Paul Felder or a Daniel Cormier or a Michael Bisbing or a Dominic Cruz, those guys are incredible broadcasters. But when you have a veteran in the lead seat who can guide you in and out of moments, you know, behind the scenes for guys like you and I who are in the business, there's such an art to what John does and uh, I'm thrilled for him man. what a guy. Yeah. It's incredible to see. I was, I was happy to get him on here uh, back when it was at severe, just an amazing conversation. And another guy that similar to you can grow the hair officially. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. So, so people know he can <laughs> His brother. Jason, of course, has the big long locks. Great lettuce. So Great just, lettuce. Yeah. I had mine down. It was when I still had it. So I had it down for him and he was like, look at, we never talked about that. I thought you were going to start a band. When I saw you with that hair and I was watching the shows, I said, this guy's starting a band. So the interesting thing is when I walked in and told them that I wanted to get rid of it, the guy actually initially was like, no. I was like, yeah. what do you mean? No. Like, here's the money. I'm the customer. I right. need this gone. Right. It's right. the end of April. It's already 30 degrees here. I'm not dealing with this crap all summer. <laughs> Let's go. And Got so. It. He was, he was the same guy that does it every time now. And last time I was in, he was just like, do you miss it? I said, no, not for a minute. Yeah. Well, I grow back. Maintenance there. Yeah. Well, you grow up back. I said, if my wife tells me to sure, but I don't think she cares either. Cause there's not little hairballs all over the house anymore. <laughs> you mentioned some of those kind of iconic moments, obviously the press conference being one of them for you during that eight year journey. What were some of those moments where you knew, okay, this is different, or some of those athletes where you yeah. could identify, hang on a minute, this is, we've got something special here, whether it's an event, whether it's a fight, whether it's a fighter that really stood out for you that, that gave you that initial, like, yeah, this is going to be a thing. 
I could probably do two podcasts talking about this. Yes. Um, you You're know, welcome back anytime. I appreciate right? we that. Could, we could certainly do it if you'd like. There are three moments that, that immediately jump out. Um, that Henderson Cerrone fight, the first one, the five rounder where they battled to physical and mental exhaustion. That fight to me in San Antonio, Texas at the then AT&T Center, I don't ever remember energy quite like that. Um, you know, my mind then immediately goes to another incredible moment, which was uh, the Anderson Silva Chael Sonnen fight at UFC 117 or 07. I forget, you know, it was in, in Oakland and, right. and that back and forth. Um, I'm going to give you more than three. Uh, Mark Hominick walking out uh, at the Rogers Center. I'm, yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps. That's up. one. That, that's forever one for me as well. Incredible um, moment. Um, when I knew the sport was about to become a rocket ship, though, Dana and I, for my eight years together, would probably take once a month a trip from Vegas to Bristol, Connecticut to do what's infamously known as the ESPN car wash. It's an incredible experience. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Glenn Jacobs, who works on uh, ESPN's production of, of UFC was a, a big catalyst. Him and Darren DiMatteo were huge in, in helping UFC get initial visibility on ESPN. Um, but we would fly there and we'd usually bring talent with us to do a car wash. And I remember the first time we took this uh, Irishman named Conor McGregor there. And Connor was just starting to come off the runway in terms of stardom. And we took him there. And uh, I remember the schedule that we got was a little underwhelming because it was during football season, I believe. Like it was a lot of digital programming. And this was before digital programming kind of drove the day. Um, it was a lot of like dot com interviews and things like that. All good stuff. You're happy to have it. But it wasn't Sports Center. It wasn't right. first take. You weren't jawing with Stephen A. Smith. And as we left, um, Connor crushed every single interview. I mean, the the personality, the swag, the confidence, it, it's not an act. And I remember leaving and um, and going, the next time this guy, I said this to an ESPN executive, the next time this guy comes back, uh, he's going to be the biggest thing on any of your networks. And lo and behold, a few months later, we they couldn't get him back fast enough. But right. when we would go to ESPN over that eight-year journey, I remember every time we would go, another executive would pop their heads out. At first, they were a little, you know, it was a different era. The leader of ESPN was not an MMA fan. So a lot of the executives would kind of hang back in their offices and respectfully so. But every time we brought a Tito Ortiz or John Bones Jones or Conor McGregor, McGregor or Ronda Rousey or whomever, you'd see another executive kind of right. pop, pop their heads out of the office. So to me... And look, I don't deserve to feel, in my opinion, like the proud papa feeling. But, you know, at the UFC, that's that's for Dana. That's for Lorenzo. That's for, you know, the Joe Silvas of the world, the day one guys. Um, but when that deal got announced with ESPN, uh, while I had no financial interest in it, I didn't have, you know, there was no reason that I should feel the way I did. I was just so proud because, one, the flight from Vegas to Bristol is not easy. Um, it was a, it was a, it was many layovers and many nights at the uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. That's not a plug. They're not paying ESK, but that's the one restaurant in 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 that part of Connecticut that we would go to. All the journeys there to see them land this milestone deal 
uh, was huge. And, and so I think about that moment a lot, but so many fights over the years that, that changed not only my fandom, but my, my professional life. And we all looked forward to the Monday morning after a big fight because we were exhausted. We were fried, we were tired, but you could not, not feel the juice of a big fight. And every time this company would continue to get momentum, you'd start to hear from different shows and different reporters. We weren't begging for coverage anymore. Right. It was coming suddenly, to us. Suddenly everybody's knocking on your door and calling your phone as opposed to, hey, let me try to get somebody on the line. 100%. Yeah. The, the post-fight feeling is why I will still forever advocate for take the week after a pay-per-view or even the tent pole ones off so that we can just let everybody both work side, but also media side, just revel in it. Cause the big ones always have that tale where I don't want to move on to the next thing. I don't want to start talking yeah. about who's fighting on Saturday. I still want to talk about that thing that happened three nights ago and the ripple effect and the ramifications. So if I could yeah. ever impart one piece of, that's right to the company give and everybody look, a little bit of time to breathe and look that was always especially during kind of like the 2012 on if you think about the early ufc days when it really started to catch fire you'd have the shoulder programming on spike the countdown show which i think craig borsari and chris Kartsmark and those guys are best in the world at what they do you would get that shoulder programming and you would be so fired up by the time the pay-per-view rolled around right. that like you couldn't wait for the first fight of the night. You couldn't wait to see Clay Guida live on pay-per-view walk out and the hair is burping and the hair is going everywhere and Jason's slapping the hell out. Yeah, the yeah. Whole nine. Um, and there was one moment I think of a lot when when Randy Couture beat Tim Sylvia. Um, and just the the whole like holy, how did this happen? Um but now there's such a demand for MMA. There's such a demand for UFC that I think UFC and ESPN and their partners around the world are smartly filling the demand. But I, I hear you and I don't disagree that some of those early days when you had that the sole focus of that big fight coming up, you would get lost in it in the best way possible. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned sort of those early days of going to ESPN and doing the car washes and growing to where now MMA and, and UFC has gotten a little bit, certainly more mainstream. Some of these yeah. athletes are far more well-known. You are working in one of the big four for a very prominent team in the NBA and for yeah. a very prominent organization in HBSE. What steps, if any, what elements, if any, is the UFC, maybe not la lacking probably isn't the right word, but can they take to grow into and get to that NBA tier, that NF I don't think anything's ever going to get to the NFL tier Fair. because it's just, it is what it is. But that NBA tier, that Major League Baseball tier to an extent, some of the bigger, more prominent sports that get that 365, 24-7, bigger sort of pull and understanding with even the casual audience and the, and the more mainstream audience. It's, it's the right question to ask. And I think, obviously, the, the leagues that you referenced have a much longer track record um, just based on when they were established. I had, I've gotten a, a good taste of the power of the NFL. Uh, our owner, Josh Harris, uh, recently purchased the Washington Commanders. I supported him uh, on the comm strategy around that. And, and you just, 
the NFL is is the 800 pound gorilla of of sports and entertainment, and, and they do an incredible job. But to answer your question, uh, so much of it is what the UFC is incredible at, which is storytelling, which is creating stars, which is finding the right partnerships um, to amplify and, and take the sport to the next level. Look, it was a tough day when the company was actually sold to Endeavor. And it wasn't tough because anyone had any sort of negative feelings toward Endeavor or Ari or Patrick or any of the guys that were going to take it to the next level. But you knew that chapter of it being the proverbial mom and pop shop was closed. But what I think Lorenzo Fertitta smartly saw was that to get it to the next level, it was going to take some folks like Ari Emanuel and, and Patrick Weitzel and, and the team at Endeavor to find strategic distribution outlets, to find different partnerships that would bring in new audiences. And I think that's the UFC's um, mission is continuing to diversify that audience. There is no sports organization or maybe entertainment property in the world that found a way to turn a global crisis, i.e. the pandemic, right, into an opportunity to bring in so many new fans. And Dana took a lot of crap for that, right? There was a lot of folks that were questioning whether he was making the right moral decision, whether he was putting people in harm's way. and uh, But he saw an opportunity not only to provide in a time of need where people needed positive outlets, positive sources of motivation, entertainment, inspiration, but he also saw it as what he does best, blazing trails. When others zig, he zags. And when you've got that type of leadership and that type of product, it, it stands the test of time. But I think continuing to diversify where you can watch the content, continuing to storytell, and continuing to make stars. I remember one of my favorite things, the myth, was that like when Randy and Chuck retired, there would be nobody to replace them. And I remember up in Canada when GSP retired, no one would replace them. And when Anderson was gone, no one. And now I look at this cast of amazing characters that that compete in the UFC the next star is right around the corner it's actually emotional for me ESK because when zombie retired a few weeks ago to me um, I was watching a clip that uh, Ariel Hawani had with Jim Lampley where he talked about when uh, Muhammad Ali lost it was kind of like his childhood was over or youth was right. over yeah. whatever it was a fantastic quote from from Jim Lampley and when zombie um, hung up the hung up the gloves. I was like, man, my era of uh, now. Jim Miller was in my era, and he's going to fight till he's a hundred. So I'm going to keep rooting for Jim. Right, right. But so many of the guys that I, I quite literally grew up with, I became a man with in terms of my professional and personal development. The Cerrones, the Fabers, um, you know, the guys like the Korean Zombie, the Leonard Garcias. Um, it's cool to see them in the next chapters of their lives as dads and businessmen and legends. But um, there's always going to be the next star, not only because um, the UFC is great at what they do, but there are kids right now in the, in gyms who wake up wanting to be the next Conor McGregor or wanting to be the next Sean O'Malley or uh, Amanda Nunez. That wasn't necessarily the case 20 years ago. Right. Um, the UFC has made it acceptable to want to be that. And uh, to know that I play like a super small role in that, man, that's pretty cool. 
played more than a super small role with it. And let me tell you, getting tasked with writing the retirement remembrance pieces of all of these athletes that are hanging it up. Yeah. That I, same as you, grew up with, came up with, figured out my voice in this sport, my place in this sport as yeah. they're walking away is the constant reminder that these grays are earned. The gray through here is earned. Feel that. And it's uh it's getting weird. Like I I ask people about retirement and preface it every time with look, I'm older than you. I may not look it, not necessarily as weathered, but I'm older than you. And it's it's weird seeing it change. I imagine, and I'll let you go sort of in this space. I imagine it was tough, but also probably pretty, pretty happy to see Cowboy hang it up and and have the kids there, have Lynn's yeah. there, have it be that moment that he deserved and then go into the Hall of Fame as as we knew he would. Yeah, my one regret is I, I got really sick that week and ended up in the hospital. I'm good now, but I couldn't be there for it. And that was one where you want to you want to kind of be there for it. The cool thing about my dynamic with especially the WEC guys is we may not talk for months on end, but when we're together, it, it's kind of like the old pro wrestling thing. Like we it's like we're back in the locker room. Yeah. Um, and, and so many of the guys, you know, and it's not just the proverbial superstar names, like to watch Eddie Wineland and his family growing up and taking his kids fishing and teaching them how to wrestle and weight lift and seeing Uriah poolside, you know, Uriah in his early days had no issues in the lady department. Um, he could have whatever he wanted, but to see him with, with a daughter and a son and just a different, I don't know, glow, yeah. if you will, yeah. about him. It's it's really cool, and you hope that no different than the way Hoist Gracie paved the way for a GSP or Matt Hughes, who paved the way for a Tyrone Woodley, and insert name here. You hope that this next crop of stars, whether it's Sean O'Malley or Ian Gary or whoever, throw in names, can take the baton to even greater heights. The one thing I've always appreciated, though, um, more than than just about anything I've done professionally is that dealing with combat sports athletes, especially especially mixed martial artists, there is the discipline of martial arts that you feel in the interpersonal connections. Um, there's a respect, there's an appreciation, there's a gratitude for what Donna Marcolini does and Heidi Dean does and Lene Breckenridge does and Heidi Nolan does and all these incredible executives behind the scenes who don't get the publicity um, but who really make the UFC and that sport go. So it's, it's really awesome to see. As I said, I will let you go before I do let people know what is on tap for the HBSE sports enterprises and everything that's coming up. We're getting close to training camp. I believe opens yeah. here pretty soon. We got commanders are in week four, like NFL's going on. The devils are going to be coming back soon. Yeah. Be I mean, a busy listen. man here, Mr. Schaller. I'm busy, but in the best way possible. I mean, first and foremost, the most important sports games for me right now are my twin daughters and, and my son They're playing soccer and basketball and field hockey and, and everything. To watch my kids compete is is as rewarding, if not more rewarding than anything I've ever done. Um, it's an awesome time to be a part of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. I think our ownership group, Josh Harris, David Blitzer, David Edelman, our CEO, Tad Brown, um, they have built this incredible global portfolio where every day I get to wake up and work on stuff that I could have never imagined working on, whether it's the 76ers in training camp starting next week in Colorado, 
The New Jersey Devils, you know, one of the top five best odds to win the cup this year. You mentioned the Commanders. We also just made an investment in um, in Joe Gibbs Racing. So we're in the NASCAR business, which I know makes Cowboy happy. Um, we have, you know, incredible venues like the Prudential Center where we get to host UFC. I, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. The first eight or nine months after I left UFC were really hard for me personally and professionally because it had become such a huge part of, of who I was. A major reason that, that I left was, A, I wanted to, to come home to the, the greater Philadelphia area. But, you know, secondarily, I, I wanted to see if I could do it in, in the other leagues. And Dana and Lorenzo and, and so many of the amazing executives at UFC gave me the confidence and the ability to go out there and do it. So, um, look, I think it's easy in this world when you leave a place of employment to maybe have sour grapes or want to tell a story. And we see it, right? We see it in every sport. It's not going to be me, man. I, uh, I, I love those guys. I love the employees there. I love the sport. Um, and to be able to do what I do now and, you know, not to go back to the start, but you know, at the end of the day, I still fancy myself a trailer park kid from South Jersey. So uh, at almost 40 years old, being able to say that I've worked across the UFC, uh, the NHL, the NBA, the NFL. I've done some work in, in Major League Baseball now too with one of our, our principal owners. It's it's amazing. And uh, I've learned so much along the way, including um, back in the UFC days, I used to love going back at people on Twitter. Uh, now I'm older and wiser and less ornery. And uh, I, uh, I enjoy a spirited debate on X or whatever they call it now, like anybody else. But uh, mostly I enjoy watching incredible fights, watching incredible sporting events, and reminding myself why we all got into this in the first place. We were all kids who loved sports for some you know, reason. For me, one of my early sports memories was, uh, to all my friends in Toronto, you're welcome for this, Joe Carter <laughs> hitting the home run off Mitch Williams in 1993 and crying as a Philadelphia Phillies fan. But you think about those moments differently now as an adult, because they help form who you are as a sports fan and as, and frankly, as a human being. So super I, blessed. I, I was shouting at the television in joy in the television room of John and Nina Collins in Cambridge, Ontario, as that <laughs> ball went over the fence. But uh, ESK, you having me on this is, is, a, is a pleasure and an honor and uh, stoked to see you continuing to kick ass. Keep doing it. You are uh, someone who has helped grow the sport, whether you want to take credit for that or not. But there's so many good guys and gals behind the scenes, the John Morgans, the ESKs, the Mark LaMonica's, um, you know, even and the Chuck Mindenhalls, you talk about storytellers, um, just so many amazing people behind the scenes that don't always get the light uh, shined on them. And frankly, they shouldn't. It should be the combat sports athletes, but uh, amazing people, amazing experience. And uh, I'll be watching the next pay-per-view. You are very much one of those people as well. You are somebody that I, I miss dearly. Likewise, I love, bro. I love to see the shine. I love to see all the success. I wish you nothing but the best going forward. This has been an absolute pleasure. We could do it again somewhere down the line to get yes, into some more of those stories. But for Dave, I am Spencer. This has been a conversation with, and we'll see you again soon.